they will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. Great. So much for that respite. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR Public Reality Radio. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe as long as it exists on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Boy, fire and fury indeed. Desi Doyen, we had uh, planned... Well, we had a lot of things planned <laughs> for today's show. You had a very nice show planned for it today. Lovely, nice. Everybody's on vacation. Congress is out. Uh, the president is away from Washington, D.C. <sighs> Well, we'll still get to some of that, I promised, straight ahead. But uh, first, earlier today, North Korea rhetorically ratcheted up its response to the latest round of U.N. sanctions against it that were uh, recently adopted by the U.N. Security Council, including the U.S., as well as China and Russia and others. Previously, Korea, North Korea had vowed to retaliate, quote, a thousand times over. But in a new statement today, they warned the U.S. and its neighboring allies that it uh, that it's uh, was planning to mobilize, quote, physical action in retaliation against the sanctions. And then in this new statement from North Korea, they said, quote, packs of wolves are coming in attack to strangle a nation. They should be mindful that the DPRK, that's the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK's strategic steps accompanied by physical action will be taken mercilessly with the mobilization of all its national strength. The statement appeared to defy efforts by Washington and Beijing to try and defuse the tense situation with North Korea. And if Washington was hoping to defuse anything, President Donald Trump decided to 
ratchet things up still further himself in what appeared at least to be an otherwise. Did this seem to be other off the cuff to you, Desi Doyen? Yeah, it seemed to be kind of a, a casual meeting. They were supposed to be having a meeting about the opioid crisis. This was at his golf course in New Jersey, uh, yes, to discuss the opioid epidemic. Uh, I would say it was appeared to be off the cuff, except he repeated it, and it had sort of a, a poetic uh, tone to it, suggesting that he maybe was uh, had prepared this in advance in any of in any event here are these comments from president trump today in new jersey to reporters north korea best not make any more threats to the united states they will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen he has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Thank you. Yeah, North Korea, best uh, stop all those threats or else uh, we will meet them with fire and fury and our own threats. The comments followed uh, earlier tweets by Trump on Tuesday morning in which he praised the U.N. sanctions saying, uh, quote, after many years of failure, countries are coming together to finally address the dangers posed by North Korea. Adding, we must be tough and decisive. Yeah, well, that's what I'm worried about at this point. An out of control madman with nuclear weapons. Take your pick as to which one that is at this point. Uh, Both with uh, some both of them have something apparently to prove to the world. But other than that, uh, by the way, oh, gentle reminder, as Trump threatens fire and fury like the world has never seen, Wednesday, August 9, is 72 years to the day after the U.S. atomic bombing of Nagasaki. Another moment when the uh, when the world saw fire and fury like it had never seen before. Add to that also, by the way, Trump, uh, who constantly rants about uh, leakers and warns his Twitter Twitter followers to be wary of anonymous sources. Today, he retweeted a Fox News report that cited, wait for it, anonymous sources, anonymous (laughs) intelligence sources, in fact, uh, regarding U.S. spy satellites said to have detected North Korea moving anti-ship cruise missiles to a patrol boat. The report, which was promoted by Fox and Friends uh, Twitter account, was retweeted by Trump. It cited unnamed U.S. officials with knowledge of intelligence in North Korea, describing that spy satellite intelligence. Trump, of course, has demanded that his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, find such leakers and throw them in jail. He's threatened media outlets for reporting on intelligence leaks by these unnamed officials. And uh, warned, of course, his followers from believing these anonymous officials. But I guess he holds himself and apparently Fox News to a different standard Gosh, you think? than the rest of the world. Yeah. After uh, retweeting the report, Trump published his own tweet, then uh, addressing North Korea's potential nuclear capabilities, calling for, uh, you know, being tough and decisive. And then later on, adding the fire and fury on top of all of that. So everything is going along fantastically at this point. Um, well, you know what? At least I want to get to this. I want to make sure that we have time for this before we get to our guest here today, because, uh, well, this is from the New York Times. Speaking of leaks, speaking of anonymous officials, uh, the average temperature in the U.S. has risen rapidly and dr- drastically 
since 1980, and recent decades have been the warmest of the past 1,500 years. This according to a sweeping federal climate change report that is now awaiting approval by the Trump administration. This draft report from uh, by scientists from 13 different federal agencies has not yet been made public. Well, actually, it has been, at least parts of it, by the New York Times here. The report that was leaked to the Times concludes that Americans are feeling the effect of climate change right now. It directly contradicts claims by President Trump and members of his cabinet who say that the human contribution to climate change is uncertain and that the ability to predict predict the effects is limited. A draft report obtained by The New York Times reads, quote, Evidence for a changing climate abounds from the top of the atmosphere to the depths of the oceans. Remember now, this is a government report, the same government uh, that is headed by right now uh, an, an administration which is saying uh, that, you know, we're, we're uncertain. The science is not clear yet. Well, the government's own scientists, 13 different federal agencies are saying in no uncertain terms that, yes, the science is clear from the top of the atmosphere to the depths of the oceans. The authors note that thousands of studies conducted by tens of thousands of scientists have documented documented climate change on land and in the air. Quote, many lines of evidence demonstrate that human activities, especially emissions of greenhouse heat trapping gases, are quote, primarily responsible for recent observed climate change, they write. Uh, now, this is of note because, you know, you have people who don't understand this issue, people who just, you know, watch Fox News for yeah. their uh, leaks from unnamed intelligence officials. Uh, you know, they think this is a couple of studies, that there are a few scientists who are predicting this. No, this report that is waiting for the uh, approval, the signature, I guess, of, uh, of President Trump, um, much like those from, by the way, the U.N., are essentially studies of studies. They yes. look at thousands and thousands. They're meta studies. The report was it was completed this year, and it's a, uh, a special science section of what is the National Climate Assessment that's congressionally mandated every four years. The National Academy of Sciences uh, has now signed off on this report, and the authors are awaiting permission from the Trump administration to release it. One government scientist who worked on the report, Catherine Hayhoe, a professor of political science at uh, Texas Tech University, called the conclusions among, quote, the most comprehensive climate science reports to be published. Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist. Yeah. What did I say? Political scientist. Oh, actually, I'm reading from the New York Times. See? Failing New York <laughs> Times apparently got it wrong. Uh, another scientist uh, uh, who spoke to the New York Times on the condition of anonymity said he and others were concerned that this report would be suppressed. And that's why, essentially, they were leaking it out. Um, we've seen this before. We saw this during the Bush administration. Remember uh, Rick Piltz, who uh, the late Rick Piltz, no longer with us, but he had uh, was one of the first to resign from the George W. Bush administration because he found that the scientists were putting together reports and then the uh, politicians 
We're taking those reports and changing them to make yes. them more politically censoring uh, them, palatable. altering the words. They did that actually with the last uh, with the climate assessment that came out in the Bush administration, trying to change words mm-hmm. and change phrasing to make it to play up the uncertainties and doubt to make it sound like there was a lot of doubt when there was none. He resigned Piltstead at the time so that he could come out and explain what was going on. Instead, we've now got these scientists leaking the information. To the New York Times, uh, trying to alert the world in case that you know, in case it does change, in case they change it before they release it. Uh, the report concludes, just in case they do change it, uh, that even if humans immediately stopped emitting all greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that would be immediately, right now, today. If we did that, and obviously that's not going to happen, but if they did, the world would still feel at least 0.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, of warming over this uh, over this century compared with today. And we've already had, haven't we already had, nearly one degree uh, of uh, Celsius warming? Exactly. In the past, uh, whatever it is, 80 yes. years or so. A small difference, uh, the paper notes, in, cl- in uh, global temperatures can make a huge difference in the climate. The difference between a rise in global temperatures of 1.5 degrees Celsius and Two degrees Celsius, for example, could mean longer heat waves, more intense rainstorms, faster disintegration of coral reefs. Among the more significant uh, findings in the uh, in the study is that it is possible to attribute some extreme weather to climate change. This has been uh, much controversy about this over recent years when we have these huge storms hit. Do they have the uh, the, the fingerprint? Is the that, attribution uh, is what they call uh, right. it. And and previously there was not uh, the science couldn't happen fast enough. The data gathering and the data crunching couldn't happen fast enough. But now we have that capability. We are much much further along in attribution for these extreme weather events. That's why when we have say the huge floods in Boulder, the huge floods uh, just you know last year mm-hmm. in uh, in North Carolina, that all of those can now many of them. I should say, can now be attributed to climate change fairly accurately. The EPA is one of 13 agencies that, and by the way, you'll be shocked to learn that the White House and the EPA did not uh, return comment or calls uh, or respond to email requests from the New York Times in response to this. I bet they didn't. They don't know what to say at this point. The EPA is one of 13 agencies that must approve the report by August 18. Yes. So... Tick, tick, tick at this point. Uh, That's, what is that, about a week or two from now. Uh, Will be very interesting to see what they do. Scott Pruitt, the administrator of the EPA, says he does not believe that carbon dioxide is a primary contributor to global warming. And yet... How many agents? 13 federal agencies are yes. all uh, scientists from all of these agencies are saying, uh, I'm sorry, Administrator Pruitt. Yes, they do. You are absolutely wrong. Michael Oppenheimer, professor of geoscience and international affairs at Princeton University, uh, who, who wasn't uh, involved in this study, uh, says this is a fraught situation. This is the first case in which an analysis of climate change of this scope has come up in the Trump administration, and scientists will be watching very carefully to see how they handle it. Uh, 
Yeah. There, well, there also is some question. There was a version that was available for the public to comment on. That was back in December. Mm-hmm. It's unclear whether this specific version that's been posted now by a number of media outlets is the same one that was posted before. Some are saying that the, it looks like it has been changed a little bit from that previous draft that was available to the public. But the bottom line here is whether or not this is something that the public has seen before, the point is the findings are dire. They are far further along than I think the media has let on to the American people. Yep. And the question now is, as you say, since it is the first time that the Trump administration is going to be confronted with the actual science that they are mandated by Congress to release, mm-hmm. we'll see if they change any of that and try to mislead the American well, public again. Well, they're not going to change it before August 18 as far as uh, changing that mandate. And that's a, a good thing about this is mandated by law. Statutorily, they have to put out this report, this national climate assessment every four years. Thank God for that, that this has to come out. It's above and beyond, uh, you know, the politics of any particular administration, at least as long as this remains the statute. The um, the report concludes in case there's any confusion here with very high confidence that the number and severity of cool nights have decreased since the 60s. The frequency of and severity of warm days has increased. Extreme cold waves are less common now than they were in the 1980s. Extreme heat is uh, much more common. And uh, the study looks at every corner of the U.S. and finds that all of it was touched in some fashion by climate change. The average annual temperature, and this is amazing, uh, in the U.S. will continue to rise, according to the authors, uh, making recent record-setting years, quote, relatively common in the near future. We've now gone through, what, the past three years have each been hotter than the... Yeah. Yes, with 2016 being the hottest year on record. And now, even without an El Nino brewing in the Pacific and goosing global temperatures, 2017, the first half of 2017, is already racking up to be the second hottest year on record. That is remarkable, that is weird, and that is freaking scientists out. This report projects increases of five to seven and a half degrees Fahrenheit by the late century. That is uh, almost uh, three degrees, three to almost five degrees Celsius by the late century, depending on the level of future emissions. This is all up to us, frankly, as far as how much we exactly. emit. And that's the other takeaway from this. This is all dependent on how much more emissions we emit as a society, and especially as the United States, which, you know, historically we are responsible for primarily the most of the emissions that are in the, in the atmosphere right now. The government uh, scientists wrote that surface air and ground temperatures in Alaska and the Arctic, and this is something you've been covering, Des, for years now, uh, but in, uh, particularly in recent years on the Green News report that the, the, the temperatures in Alaska and Arctic are rising at frighten, frighteningly fast rates, twice as fast as the global average. So the globe is warming, but Arctic and Alaska, we've been reporting in you know, days in the middle of dead of winter when up in, uh, what is it, in Fairbanks, Alaska, the temperatures are going up to 70 degrees? Well, not it wasn't in the dead of winter, It was uh, it was, but they did have the Arctic, the North Pole, go up above freezing in the middle of winter. That is weird. Uh, yeah, no, but we've had uh, days yeah, in Alaska where it was like 70 degrees and people are like, what the hell is going on in Alaska exactly. at this time of year? 
the report concludes it is very likely that the accelerated rate of Arctic warming will have a significant consequence for the U.S., you think, due to accelerating land and sea ice melting that is driving changes in the ocean, including sea level rise threatening our coastal communities, the report says. Human activity, the report goes on to say, is the primary culprit. So, uh, you know, this the study doesn't make policy recommendations. It just gives the science. Uh, but it notes that the st- that stabilizing the global mean temperature increased to just two degrees Celsius, which is the the scientific guardrail beyond which uh, change becomes catastrophic, according to uh, scientists, will require significant reductions in global levels of carbon dioxide. I know we cover this all the time, but frankly. Very few other people do. And, you know, that's why we've been covering it for so many years. That's why this matters. That's why Donald Trump's election uh, mattered last year, amongst other reasons. You know, the yeah, we're going to have some fire and fury here. You know, e- either by uh, Trump unleashing a, a, a war, God forbid, nuclear weapons, uh, on on the uh, Korean Peninsula, or one way or another, if we just you know continue on the path that we seem to be on, we are going to have fire and fury of a different type on this planet. Nearly 200 nations agreed as part of the Paris Climate Accords to uh, limit or cut fossil fuel emissions, but your president, Desi Doyen, uh, announced earlier this year that the U.S. would withdraw from that Paris Agreement saying that the, the deal was bad for America. Well, you know what else would be bad? Uh, 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 well, actually, he said it was a bad deal. Yeah, uh, you know what else would be a bad deal for America? A nation in which crops fail, our major coastal cities are overtaken by the sea, inland cities are increasingly hit by extreme weather and flooding and deadly heat waves, all of which cost us billions of dollars, by the way, that we could avoid. By taking action now and improving jobs and the economy to boot at the very same time. But don't tell our U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, about this. She responded to this new report that was uh, published by The New York Times, talking about the rapid warming since 1980. And uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, said Tuesday that climate protection is important, but... It shouldn't take priority over American jobs. She appeared today on the uh, on the Today Show and was asked if the administration would embrace the results of this study, uh, finding that human activities are primarily responsible for global uh, climate change. Haley said that Americans should not think that just because the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, well, that doesn't mean that we don't believe in climate protection. Given the fact we just pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, will the administration embrace the results of this study? Well, first of all, I think you have to look at just because we pulled out of the Paris Accord doesn't mean we don't believe in climate protection. I think we're very aware that we need to do that. What we're saying is we're not going to sell out American businesses to do that. Will we embrace the re- results of this report from 13 federal agencies? I haven't seen the report, but I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. I mean, I think a lot of this is we're not saying that climate change is not real. It is real. It's how do you have that balance between making sure you've got jobs and businesses moving and then also making sure you protect your climate. The answer's in the middle. How do you ensure that your businesses are working, but also that you have, I don't know, Iowa later on, Kansas later on, that can grow your food supply? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that kind of matters, doesn't it? Um, 
just unbelievable. They do not get it. They do not understand it. So we'll just keep repeating it. Uh, this uh, just breaking while uh, Nikki Haley was speaking there uh, from uh, Sputnik News says North Korea considering targeting Guam Aww. with, quote, enveloping fire. Hey, keep ratcheting things up, Donald Trump. That'll stop them. That'll show them you're a tough guy. At least we've got a functional Congress who can rein Trump in as needed, right? <laughs> Wrong. Congress appears right now at least to be just as broken as the White House. Uh, of course, they don't have their finger on the nuclear button. The most unproductive Congress since the Civil War. Some might say, thankfully... Uh, with Republicans in charge of both chambers and, and the White House, uh, it wasn't supposed to be this way, but our guest is standing by. So that story is next on the Bradcast. Buckle up. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go? Yeah, you do. While you see it your way, but the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone. We can work it out. Can they? We can work it out. We'll see. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Unless uh Donald Trump and North Korea blow up the world first. We'll see if Congress can get along, at least when they come back from uh, from their nearly month-long recess. I think it's actually five weeks in the U.S. House. In any event, yesterday on the show, we spent some time discussing one of the elements of Donald Trump's new immigration proposal that's called the RAISE Act, in which he introduced... Um, uh, last week with Republican Senators Tom Cotton of Arkansas and David Perdue of Georgia, the bill would cut legal immigration in half over the next 10 years and change our system for allowing folks into the country with uh, with green cards to a primarily merit based point system with an emphasis, for example, on those who already speak English rather than on different criteria, such as those who already have family uh, based in the U.S., the aspect we focused on yesterday had to do with Trump's claims that the RAISE Act would prevent legal immigrants from receiving any form of government welfare for five years, even though, don't tell the president, that's actually already the law of the land. His proposal, as it turns out, would prevent U.S.-born children, U.S. citizens, of green holders from obtaining public assistance, such as food stamps and health care. In any event, over the weekend, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida was asked about the Raise Act back home in Florida during the ongoing Senate recess. Rubio, who is himself a fan of immigration reform, uh, specifically changing the U.S. immigration system to a merit-based uh, point system, he dismissed the proposal by the president and his fellow Senate Republicans in short order, saying that 
That proposal will not pass the U.S. Senate. Let's talk about immigration because the president came out this week in support of a bill uh, that looks to limit legal immigration and looks to score potential immigrants on, uh, on a variety of different measures. If this bill were to pass, uh, perhaps your, your parents wouldn't have been able to yeah, get it. Yeah, but that bill's not going to pass. And you wouldn't be a U.S. senator. Well, first, a couple things. Number one is that bill's not going to pass. Obviously, I think the White House knows you don't have 60 votes for that in the Senate. So that's it. That bill's not going to pass. That's it, I guess. If Republicans don't find any bills that they can work on with Democrats, it seems, uh, or if they, you know, want to nuke the 60 vote filibuster, then it seems like it's going to be very difficult for them to uh, move forward with their legislative agenda in any way or pass perhaps measures under the narrow reconciliation rules that allow for a simple 51 vote majority instead. But as we saw in the recent GOP Senate health care debacle, even coming up with 51 votes within the GOP's 52 seat caucus or 53 seats, if you include Vice President Mike Pence in the U.S. Senate, apparently is no easy feat these days. Last month at TheWeek.com, author and political scientist David Ferris observed in an article headlined Why the GOP Congress Will Be the Most Unproductive in 164 Years. And mind you, this was before all of the uh, GOP schemes to repeal and replace Obamacare fell dramatically apart in the U.S. Senate. Ferris observed, quote, just six months ago, it looked like the Republican Party was about to go on a legislative blitzkrieg, shredding law after law passed by the Obama administration. Obamacare would be vaporized and replaced with a nickel rattling inside an empty Mountain Dew can. Dodd-Frank was sure to be tossed aside for a transparent giveaway to Wall Street, and Republicans would pass their regressive tax reform, their perplexing border adjustment tax, and so much more. The GOP hadn't held total power in American politics since 2006. And now, instead of George W. Bush, a man who recognized at least some theoretical limits on free market fundamentalism, the new Congress would work with the subliterate tabula rasa. That means essentially a guy who is a clean slate with no actual ideology for those of you non-cosmopolitan types who aren't as elite as David Ferris. A guy named Donald Trump, a man who could uh, probably be persuaded to inject himself with experimental medication if an important seeming person whispered, do it into his ear. But a funny thing happened, writes Ferris, on the way to libertarian utopia. Indeed, it turns out that the GOP-controlled Congress can't seem to pass any meaningful laws at all. Thus far, GOP senators are on track to be the least productive group since at least the Civil War. So what's the holdup on these important bills getting to Trump's desk, Ferris uh, asks. This Congress has not yet forwarded any legislation to the president that will significantly alter the trajectory of our politics or economics. Ferris then goes on uh, to cite a list of bills that had been approved by both houses of Congress when he wrote this piece a few weeks ago in July, in case anyone wanted to argue that the U.S. wants to compete for a World Expo Act, or H.R. 534, is going to be the subject of debate by future historians. So what the hell is happening here? How has the legislative agenda of both Trump and his congressional Republicans seemingly gone so wildly astray? And by the way, will it stay that way? 
Why did it occur with Republicans controlling both chambers of Congress and the White House? Is it Congress's fault? Is it Trump's fault? Is it something else? Here to help us understand what the hell happened is David Ferris, uh, that elite cosmopolitan I mentioned. He's a contributor at The Week. He's associate professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Roosevelt University in Chicago. And he's the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age. He's also a frequent contributor to Informed Comment, and his work has appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times, the Christian Science Monitor, and Indie Week. David Ferris, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me on, Brad. Great to have you here. Uh, before we get into, um, of course, I'm just kidding a little bit about that cosmopolitan elitist <laughs> thing, Dave. Uh, but uh, b- but before we get into some of the explanations for what's going on here, uh, as described in your article, it was written in mid-July, which is not that long ago, but in Trump time, that seems like forever ago. It was before the health care debacle uh, and this tear of votes that took place in the U.S. Senate last week. Anything happened there uh, within the intervening weeks to uh, make you modify your, your mid-July assessment on the pro- productivity of uh, Congress to date? Absolutely not. No, I think um, what what happened in the Senate uh, last month really only kind of underlined what the point I was trying to make, which is that uh, the divisions within uh, the Republican Party right now are, are almost too big to bridge in any single piece of legislation, um, and that's because uh, over the last ten, fifteen years, um, a lot of really far right, hard right ideologues have been elected to power in both the House and the Senate. Um, and they seem incapable of formulating compromise proposals that could get the support of the more moderate members of their caucus. Um, and so with such a narrow margin in the Senate, um, that, that kind of leaves them with very, very little room to maneuver on, on most pieces of legislation. You, you describe yeah. you describe that you cite the uh, uh, some UCLA uh, tracking over the past 30 years that describes this as asymmetric polarization. Um, so it's not uh, polarization between Democrats and Republicans that's the problem. This is, is, is well. What does asymmetric polarization actually mean here in this context? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there, there is polarization between the parties. Um, but what uh, what the UCLA folks argue, um, and uh, you can go to their website. It's called mm-hmm. VoteView.com. And uh, what they argue is that what has happened over the last thirty, forty years is that Republicans have moved. Um, much, much further to the right than Democrats have to the left, right? So if you look at um, the ideological scores of the Democratic Party in both the House and the Senate, um, they've moved a little bit to the left since 1980, but not mm-hmm. by much. Like, it's almost imperceptible. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you chart uh, the movement of the GOP, uh, it's just like a long, consistent, straight march uh, off the ideological map, you know, into sort of uncharted territory. Um, so that the center of gravity... And, and the Republican Party has moved much more to the right than the center of gravity in the Democratic Party, if that makes sense. It, no, it does um, make sense. Does, does the UCLA data or your own work um, have, you know, have any explanation for this widening divide that is on the right but not on the left? And I know Republicans like to say, oh, the party has moved so far to the left. Obviously, that's actually nonsense. I wish they had moved uh, farther to the left. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, but why did this why did this happen for Republicans and not for Democrats? Well, um, one of the I mean, one of the big sort of overarching trends in American politics and society has been this thing called the big sort, 
um, and that is uh, the tendency of Americans to live around like-minded individuals, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so the people in the cities, uh, it's like every day they wake up, and that's the most left-wing day of their life. And the people in the exurbs, every day they wake up, and it's the most right-wing day of their lives. And their views uh, and ideological tendencies are are reinforced by their friends and their neighbors, um, all of mm-hmm. whom generally think alike and tend to converge um, on more sort of uh, more extreme positions on, on, on each end. In, in Congress... Um, this, what has happened over the last 40 years is that the number of competitive seats in Congress has plunged mm-hmm. um, from you know, around 100 in the 1980s to about 36 today. So that means only 36 of the 435 seats in Congress are, are really contested or competitive at all. You know, like the other 399 are just mm-hmm. like right off. You know, <laughs> like the outcome is not in doubt. And that's largely um, due to gerrymandering, well, the big sort as you describe it, but also specifically the uh, gerrymandering, uh, correct? Absolutely, yeah, um, and it's worse now because um, because Democrats lost the series of fights prior to the last round of redistricting. Mm-hmm. So the 2010 um, state level level elections pretty much like wiped the Democrats out and gave the GOP total control of the redistricting process in, in many many more states um, than than the Democrats had. There's a, there's a great book about this. Um, by David Daly. Who's, yeah. who, I mean, I'm not sure I can say the name of that book on, on air. No, you, you can't. Um, We've had him on. We, I think we described it as um, Rat Flipped, I think was flipped, the name yeah. we described it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, that, that project was very successful um, for the Republicans and uh, meant that in 2012, for instance, Democrats got more votes um, for the House of Representatives, but the um, Republicans ended up with more seats. So that's, that's a really heavily gerrymandered um, uh, set of, of seats in the House. So there was a, a good article on 538 that was going around uh, yesterday or the day before talking about the sort of this, the structural disadvantage that the Democrats face, even in a wave election that they hope to see next year. But why doesn't, um, that, why doesn't that explain, I mean, uh, that explains why we've got so many Republicans, but as far as their extremism, their ideology, and, and the, 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 how far they have gone to the right, um, you would think that if they're essentially, you know, grouping all of the Republicans in these districts, all the Democrats in those districts, why haven't the the Democrats then had an equal and opposite uh, uh, direction uh, in in a move to the left? You know, that's I mean, that's actually a really good question that I don't I don't think that political science scholarship has a has a great answer for. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I can offer you a, a, a couple of ideas. Um, one is that there are more safe GOP seats than there are safe Democratic seats, mm-hmm. right? And when you have a safe seat like that, um, the, the primary then becomes the general election, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the people running in these GOP primaries um, over the last 15, 20 years have become more and more partisan, have become mm-hmm. more and more extreme. And that's because uh, that's, like, that's really kind of our fault, right? Not Democrats, but us, the American people. And that's mm-hmm. because nobody turns out for primary elections. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the people that turn out for primaries tend to be the most committed partisans and the most committed extremists. And because you have more of those kinds of contests um, where you can just be like your most outrageous self, because you have more of those contests on the GOP side than you have on the Democratic side, um, you end up with, um, uh, you end up, I think, with an ideological uh, asymmetry. Um, that is, uh, that there are still more seats that the Democrats control uh, that end up being close, mm-hmm. uh, and thus they can't forward, um, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders type candidate in the primary, where that candidate has a tougher, like, kind of road to hoe. Uh, whereas the GOP, you know, like, uh, whoever wins the primary in Utah, you know, that person's a senator, right? Mm-hmm. So, 
uh, that's how you get your Mike Lees. That's how you get your Ted Cruz's. Um, because they really, um, they're really unaccountable, right? Like the only people that they are accountable to are their own primary voters. And that's, I think that's a big explanation of why so many senators went along with this health care fiasco that they knew was terrible policy, um, because they were more afraid of their primary voters in 2018 or 2020 than they are of the general election voters uh, that, that come out a few months later in November. And does that, um, does the political science, because we can go back to the gerrymandering that happened after 2010, that also happens to be the year that Citizens United passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering if if we're able to tell how much of an effect specifically on, you know, right wing ideology that Citizens United has and uh, and why, again, why it doesn't have sort of an equal and opposite reaction on the Democrats who, you know, take their own fair share of uh, uh, corporate funding, uh, to be sure. sure. Um, I mean, yeah. I would argue, you know, uh, that, that Citizens United is was like the culmination uh, of a long period of activism on the right rather than. Uh, like a new thing that came out of nowhere and transformed our politics. Mm-hmm. Not to say that's not extremely destructive, because it is. Um, but what you saw starting in the 1980s was um, this network of, of really policy-minded um, think tanks and pressure organizations located in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, that's people like the Heritage Foundation, uh, the American Enterprise Institute, um, and even some smaller outfits like Americans for Tax Reform, Grover Norquist people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they, they had like a 30-year head start on the Democrats in terms of um, this, this, this network of policy shops that would push um, particular pieces of policy or they would push these broader ideologies. And they would hold um, their candidates to account uh, in terms of their votes on particular issues, right? Mm. That's, why, that's why almost no Republicans have voted to increase taxes in 25, mm. 30 years. Um, because they all take a tax pledge. Yeah. You know, they pledge their allegiance to Grover Norquist and say, like, oh, we will never raise taxes. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that filters out the moderate candidates uh, from the get-go, right? Like, that means those people will not win primaries. That means if they are elected and they vote the wrong way, they will be primaried out of existence. Um, and you saw that again and again over the last 10 years, where um, uh, even sitting Republican Congress people were defeated. People like, even leaders like Eric Cantor mm-hmm. um, were defeated in primaries uh, because they were insufficiently pure. Um, and there just hasn't been anything. There was a brief period where Democrats were doing this. Remember the, the primary against Joe Lieberman? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it just hasn't, it hasn't been as advanced, right? And they don't have, uh, on the right, I would uh, toss in here, um, you know, on the, well, on the right, They've got talk radio. They've got mm-hmm. uh, Fox News. They've got these, uh, you know, media uh, monsters that just hammer this dumb stuff home every day. I mean, good luck finding progressives like myself anywhere on our public airwaves. I mean, we're out yeah. there, but barely, you know, as opposed to the uh, the right wingers. You can go into any uh, any state, any city uh, and find, you know, three or four levels deep of talk radio on the air. And this is something that I, I've been repeating for years because I think the Democrats don't understand it they don't take it seriously they think oh we you know we can reach people on the internet there's nothing that compares to hammering home a message to people uh you know as they're to millions of people tens of millions as they're driving to and from uh work every day and the democrats the progressives are just nowhere to be found uh in large part on our on our public airwaves which is in itself an obscenity but uh yeah. david ferris the you know, if you look at just the Senate, take the House out of it for the moment, just the Senate mm-hmm. where you don't have the 
uh, the same kind of gerrymandering because they're statewide elections. Well, um, you know, Republicans and Democrats used to be able to at least pull off enough votes from the other party to get stuff passed through uh, through Congress. Uh, not only seemingly has that stopped, but now it seems the Republicans can't even peel off enough votes from their own caucus uh, to, to get stuff passed. Right. I, I, d- does this mean we're just going to have to wait for the Republicans to uh, sort themselves out at some point, or or do you expect this is going to change as we're heading into an election year? I don't. I don't expect it to change very much. Um, I think you know one lesson that the Democrats took from the last eight years, uh, that is the whole Obama administration, is that party unity pays, right, um, and that. What the Republicans did by, by grinding everything to a halt, particularly after they took over the House in 2010, um, is that when, they, when, you, when you make Washington look dysfunctional, mm-hmm. um, the blame is, the Congress will take some of the blame, but electorally, um, the person that pays is the president and the president's party. Um, and so Republicans were able to, to use this really sort of ingenious, devious strategy to uh, destroy Congress as a functioning legislative institution and make Obama look bad and drag down his approval ratings um, and drive down enthusiasm and drive down turnout. And that's how they were able to win um, the midterm elections in 2010 and 2014. And, I, and, and they were really, they remained unified throughout almost the entire Obama presidency with a couple of exceptions when there was like, you know, when the world would have exploded if they hadn't done something like the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, not, not unreasonably, I think the, the Democrats have looked at that history and concluded that there's absolutely nothing in it for them um, to provide a handful of votes for Trump and the Republicans. Because all it's going to do is make Trump look better, um, and that is going to uh, increase Republican margins during the midterms. I was. So I think. That, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I think the only thing that Democrats would come and cooperate on um, is something that would would genuinely help. <clears throat> genuinely help like the most marginal people in our society. That would be something like a compromise on. Um, reforming uh, the Obamacare exchanges or things like that, or to shore them up. Uh, but in terms of big, big ticket legislation, um, uh, unless the GOP is really willing to capitulate to Democratic demands, I doubt they're going to get much, much Democratic cooperation at all. Um, I don't know. Means, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't trust uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia as far as I can throw him, and I would like to throw him. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, as they're heading into now uh, uh, tax cuts and um, uh, some of this other stuff. We've got a number of must-pass bills that are coming up when Congress returns in September, raising the debt ceiling, uh, passing a budget for 2018. Uh, Are these guys going to be able to get, uh, are the Republicans going to be able to get their act together to at least do that much, or are we facing another fiscal cliff and and government shutdown as we head towards uh, September, David? Well, I mean, I think the the odds of a government shutdown are, I I think, much higher than they were. during, during the Obama administration. Um, I think that's partly because Democrats are going to hold out for, or I hope they're going to hold out for really significant concessions, mm-hmm. one of which would be eliminating the debt ceiling, right? Um, because uh, it's a stupid idea. It's a stupid idea in the first place, right? This is stuff yeah, we've already committed to. So we've committed <laughs> to pay for this stuff, so we have to pay for it. Stop this fake ceiling, I guess, that we, we have to raise every few months now. Yeah, it's just become a, a piece of theater, you know, a, a kind of a political football every six months. Um, we have to do this dance. And I think, you know, the American people are, are super tired of it. Um, it's just, it's dispiriting. It's ugly. Um, and I think if Democrats are going to provide any votes um, for any lifting of the debt ceiling, 
they have to they have to hold firm and they have to get something in return because ultimately they can kind of kick back and this is the advantage of being in the minority they can kick back and say like hey you know if we don't get what we want like good luck man you know <laughs> um, yep. and then the Republicans own it right they're going to yep. own everything because they own DC right now um, I, I am surprised that Democrats have held together frankly uh, this long that they that they haven't cracked that you haven't seen guys like Joe Manchin. Uh, that both in the House and the Senate, they seem to be uh, hanging together here. David Ferris, yeah. I've got uh, just another uh, minute or so here, uh, so I realize this is not a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You've, <laughs> you've got a new book, I note, that is coming out uh, next year for election season, uh, tentatively titled It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Progressives Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. As I say, it's an unfair question, and I, I, I promise to have you on to actually talk about the book once it's out, but can can you give us a very quick preview of uh, Fighting Dirty? Absolutely, yeah. No, I'm very excited about this book. It's, um, it's really like a long uh, advice letter to the Democratic Party about what they should do next time they're in power um, to eliminate some of the structural biases against progressives in American politics. Um, and that involves things like um, the Fair Representation Act, which was introduced to Congress last month. Mm -hmm. That would change the way we vote for the House, and that would make it possible for third and fourth parties to win power. Um, it would eliminate the influence of gerrymandering, things like that. Uh, it means things like uh, admitting Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico as states, mm. um, because the Democrats have this massive structural imbalance in the, in the U.S. Senate. Um, where there's just there's like 10 more Republican-leaning states than Democratic states. And if, if that process continues to shake out, it's going to be very difficult for the Democrats to hold power in D.C. Um, there's another sort of a little bit off-the-wall piece where I recommend breaking California up into, into seven states, mm. uh, all of which I've mapped it out, and they would all have progressive majorities. Um, and so I'll, I'll have some work to do yeah. to, uh, to win over my, my, my California readers on that one. Um, well, I was going to say, I, that, that's the, uh, that sounds like the dirtiest part so far. The other stuff sounds <laughs> like uh, just good politics. And uh, so maybe we'll have to uh, wait for the uh, dirty stuff when the book comes out, because I, uh, I will look forward to that, and, and I will want to talk to you about that, as I hope Absolutely. to do so uh, even before it comes out. David Ferris, great talking with you about all of this. I'd point folks towards uh, your piece at The Week. Dot com headlined why the GOP Congress will be the most unproductive in 164 years. And I'd also uh, point folks uh, towards your Twitter account, which is David M. Ferris. David, really enjoyed having you on today. Thank you. Great to chat with you, Brad. Anytime. Oh, you'll be sorry you said that. Okay, quick break in. We're back with whatever few minutes we have left here on the Bradcast. More fire and fury? I hope not. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. There's been a load of compromising On the road to my horizon But I'm gonna be where the lights are shining on me Like a rhinestone cowboy Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That, of course, is Glenn Campbell. 
the voice behind 21 top 40 hits. 21 top 40 hits, including Rhinestone Cowboy, Wichita Lineman, By the Time I Get to Phoenix. Oh, that's one of the best. He died on uh, Tuesday after a long battle with Alzheimer's. Uh, He was, Glenn Campbell was 81 years old. Uh, A career that spanned six decades, Campbell sold over 45 million records. In 1968, one of his biggest years, he outsold the Beatles. Really? Yep. He released uh, more than 70 albums over a 50-year career, bridged country and pop, and had a series of hits in the 60s and 70s, making history in 1967 by winning four Grammys in the country and pop categories, which never used to happen. Campbell was also uh, an actor and TV host. He starred in the variety show The Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour on (laughs) CBS from 1969 to 72, which I should say is, I think, perhaps my personal earliest TV memory. Really? Yeah. I remember watching uh, Glenn Campbell uh, when I was allowed to stay up late enough to watch it. Uh, For some (laughs) reason, I remember it well. The uh, 2014 documentary I'll Be Me documented... Glenn's farewell tour and his struggles with Alzheimer's, uh, with his Alzheimer's diagnosis. He was 81 years old and he will be missed. Uh, All right. Before we go, I had actually, uh, well, we'll get to this on tomorrow's thrilling episode. I hope Uh, the story about the Department of Justice and this case concerning Voter registration uh, had to sort of bump that off for now, uh, thanks to uh, Donald Trump's fire and fury remarks threatening North Korea. If they don't stop threatening us, he uh, apparently we're going to unleash fire and fury like the world has ever never seen. And you know what's troubling? I had this other story that I was uh, looking at. It's his uh, we're at day 200 of his presidency. Oh, right, right. And uh, on uh, earlier uh, this week, he went on to Twitter to boast about how uh, strong his base of support is. But the polling tells a totally different story. He uh, lambasted the media uh, in this tweet, as he usually does, insisting, quote, the Trump base is far bigger and stronger than ever before. Adding, despite some phony fake news polling, that, of course, to uh, counter this really not fake news polling that uh, comes out showing that his base even now is beginning to fall apart. Um, Polls indicate that uh, that base is, in fact, eroding. On Monday evening, a new CNN poll put his job approval rating at 38 percent. But more worrying for the White House, I suppose, is that. The CNN poll also showed that his, quote, strong approval among Republicans has slid from 59 percent, slid to 59 percent from 73 percent in February. So we're talking about a 14 point drop among his biggest supporters who had strongly approved of him uh, in February. That has fallen off in a Quinnipiac University poll. We uh, talked a little bit about this poll uh, a few days ago uh, where he got an overall approval rating of just 33 percent. So that's bad enough as it is. That's overall. But among his base voters, again, in that poll, Trump was even underwater among white people without a college education. That's his base right there. The heart of his election winning coalition last November, as The Hill describes it. Um, 
He got he's got just now 43 percent approval from white people without a college education, 50 percent disapproval from that group. And the Quinnipiac poll, like the CNN poll, showed a decline in the share of Republicans approving of his performance. Among Republicans, his performance won the approval of 76 percent. That sounds like a big number, but contrast that with 84 percent in just late June. So he's dropped quite a bit. Yeah, quite a bit among the people that he is counting on to support him. And that's sort of where all of this gets uh, scary for me when he starts uh, threatening war with North Korea and fire and fury. Oh, definitely. If you're a president and your base is falling apart, uh, the way to shore that up, to stop that uh, in its tracks, hey, launch a war. Everybody's got to get behind you then, right? Well, yeah. Remember remember that early on he bombed Syria and even the media supported him. They fall for it every time, don't they? They do. Uh, despite uh, the dismissal of these numbers by Trump and his most diehard supporters who believe that all the mainstream polls are fake, apparent evidence of erosion in the president's support is also found from GOP pollsters. We noted a few days ago his all-time low in the right-wing Rasmussen poll, uh, which he used to cite on Twitter. Uh, But also uh, late last week, the Republican firm Firehouse Strategies released a new survey of voters in four battleground states, Florida, Wisconsin, Ohio and Pennsylvania. And it found that the share of Republicans who held strongly favorable views of Trump had fallen from roughly 54 percent down to 45 percent since last April. His uh, share of Republicans with an unfavorable views had also risen significantly from 20 percent to 28 percent. So things are not looking good. And by the way, they're also not looking good in uh, territory in the South and Southwest, Texas, Arizona and Georgia. Trump's approval ratings were in negative territory in Arizona and Georgia by nine points. And does in your home state of Texas. Donald Trump is underwater by seven points Wow! in the state of Texas overall. Not good news for Donald Trump, which, by the way, is probably not good news for the rest of us either. All right, got to get out. My thanks to uh, Desi Doyen. Thank you, our producer. And to my guest uh, today, David Ferris of TheWeek.com and Roosevelt University. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com where we hope you'll consider a donation at bradblog.com slash donate. You can find, follow, and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.